1: Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it.
0: Psalm 139, verse 14, New Living Translation Hello, I'm Victoria K. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We're excited to be with you today as we continue the new series we started last time on Anchored by Truth. So, in the studio today, we have R.D. Fierro. R.D. is an author and the founder of Crystal Sea Books, and he is the one picking the facts we are covering in this series. R.D., you've entitled this series, Ten Facts Every Christian Needs to Know. I'm sure many listeners would wonder how in the world you settled on the ten facts that we are including in this series. There are surely thousands of facts that are relevant to the Christian faith. Picking ten means you have to have done some hard thinking.
2: Well, I'd like to start by adding my thanks to yours for everyone who is joining us here today. And you are absolutely right that there are thousands and probably hundreds of thousands of facts that are relevant to the Christian faith. And I've been wanting to do this series for a while because I would like to highlight a couple of key points. First, as we discussed on our last episode of Anchored by Truth, the Christian faith is a faith of facts. In other words, the Christian faith is a faith that reflects the real world, and not just the world as it is today, but the entire history of the world, both the natural and the human history. And one of the ways that we can be confident about the truth of the Christian faith, about the inspiration, infallibility, and inerrancy of Scripture, is that Christianity permits us to test it by examining the principal source for Christianity, which is the Bible. We can examine the Bible through the lens of logic, reason, and evidence.
0: Now, in saying that, I want to be sure that people understand that we're not elevating man's logic over the revelation made in the Bible. What you are saying is that the Bible may be tested in the same way a farmer tests his fruit trees. Jesus gave us this test in Matthew chapter 12, verse 33, which says, quote, A tree is identified by its fruit. If a tree is good, its fruit will be good. If a tree is bad, its fruit will be bad, That's the New Living Translation version of that verse. We can be sure of the Bible's trustworthiness because we can evaluate its content for accuracy, reliability, consistency, and relevance. When we do so, we see that it possesses the attributes we would expect of a book that claims to be the Word of God. The Bible is consistent with what we know about the world and human history, and it gives evidence of supernatural origin.
2: Yes, we do not judge the Bible. The Bible judges us. But the Bible commands us to use our minds in worship. Now, in John chapter 10, verse 38 Jesus said to a group of people who were just about to try to stone him, quote, Even though you do not believe me, you should at least believe my deeds, in order that you may know once and for all that the Father is in me, and that I am in the Father, Close quote. See, even Jesus did not just demand unquestioning obedience. Jesus gave evidence to the people that he was speaking to, and of course all of us who would follow along in later years. Jesus gave us evidence, and a lot of evidence, that he was who he said he was. Well, in that very same way, the Bible provides evidence that it is what it says it is, the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. So, part of what we're doing in this series is to look at a set of facts that serve the same purpose that Jesus' deeds served. These facts confirm the Bible and its message. But you are absolutely right that deciding on just 10 facts was not easy. So, how did you do it? Well, whenever I think about the Bible, I always try to ensure that I start out with the big story. You know, the Bible is one grand saga. It's the saga of creation, fall, and redemption. Well, that grand saga features a chosen people who were the Jews. It features a chosen family out of that people, and that was the family of David. And then, of course, the saga features one central person, and that was the Messiah, who was, of course, Christ Jesus. So those are all the primary actors in this unfolding grand drama that we see in the Bible about creation, fall, and redemption. But make no mistake, even though those are, if you will, the primary actors in this grand drama, we are all players on the stage. So when I start thinking about which facts that I want to highlight that pertain to Christianity, I went back to the places where the grand saga is so misunderstood in our day and age. And of course, no big surprise, the misunderstandings begin right at
0: the beginning. It's obvious to anyone who's paying attention that the book of Genesis is the most attacked book in the Bible. For more than a century and a half, the attacks have been relentless. In our culture, the belief that all life arose from the random collision of inanimate particles has largely supplanted a belief in the creative activity of God. Even many Christians now fall for the idea that God may have started everything, but somehow he used evolution to move life along. Long-age uniformitarianism has replaced the idea that the surface of the earth we see resulted from a catastrophic worldwide flood. Few people now believe that the worldwide dispersal of human beings and the proliferation of languages resulted from God correcting the behavior of his people at Babel when they tried to build a tower that would reach the heavens.
2: Yes, As you said, Genesis is the most attacked book in the Bible, and for very good reason. If Satan and his human minions can dispense with the necessity of God as the Creator, then they can fill the resulting gap with any nonsense that is convenient at the moment. God as Creator means that God is also Sovereign and Regulator. And the one idea that fallen people hate is that they are accountable to a holy, sovereign God. So, the first fact that I chose to feature in this series of 10 facts that every Christian needs to know is the whole notion of what is sometimes termed deep time. The simple fact is that there is abundant scientific evidence that is consistent with the age of the earth and the universe being thousands of years old rather than millions or billions of years old.
0: Deep time is essentially the idea that the universe and the earth are billions of years old. The secular world must have deep time in order to maintain the illusion that the general theory of evolution is plausible. Evolution needs billions of years of time to change bacteria into biologists. The only supposed creative force evolution has is beneficial mutation. In other words, the random interaction of unthinking matter. To make the whole evolutionary hypothesis plausible, the scheme needs lots of time. Lots of time is necessary so that lots of those random chaotic interactive events can take place. They need untold trillions of those interactions in the hope that a few of them will produce a living being so complex that the code that described its construction can contain 3 billion data elements.
2: Deep time is the root of the evolutionary weed. Destroy the root and the weed will die.
0: I like that phrase. Deep time is the root of the evolutionary weed. It's graphic, but appropriate. So, we addressed the issue of deep time in our last episode of Anchored by Truth. What fact do you want to tackle today?
2: Well, today I want to address the fact that the complexity of life makes it impossible that life could have arisen as a result of the random collision of atoms and molecules, and that's even assuming you could explain the existence of the atoms and molecules to begin with.
0: Okay, I think we're going to need to probe some of the specifics that lead to a statement as definitive as that.
2: I agree. So, let's start out with the fact that, unlike Charles Darwin thought, a living cell is not a simple blob of protoplasm. Living cells are enormously complex structures. In fact, the simplest living cell is far more complex than the most sophisticated machine ever built by man.
0: I think we better get some specific examples of what you're thinking about.
2: I agree. So, let's start with some basic facts about cells. All life on Earth is cellular-based. Now, we know that there are different types of cells. Some cells have nuclei and some don't. But all life on Earth is based on cells. Some living forms are only a single cell. But the higher forms of life, of course, are multicellular. In fact, they have a great many cells. Recent estimates are that the human body contains about 200 different types of cells, but it contains a total of about 30 trillion individual cells. And remember that all of those 30 trillion individual cells are being replaced at one rate or another. But regardless of whether we're talking about a single cell, which would be a bacterium or an amoeba or something like that, or whether we're talking about a human being, Remember that key fact that all life on Earth is based on the existence of cells.
0: And we know that all cells are comprised of a cell wall or membrane that encloses the cell's machinery which consists of various proteins. The number of proteins that a particular cell contains varies widely, but even the simplest cell contains thousands of individual proteins. Estimates say that the simplest bacteria cell is comprised of at least 100 billion atoms. That's billion, with a B. In other words, every single cell on Earth is a phenomenally complicated system and the complexity of life only increases as we move up the chain.
2: Right. And the sheer numbers only begin to hint at the complexity. All of those protein machines must not only be present, but they all have to properly perform their individual function in order for the cell to function, in order for the cell to live. Now, why don't you go ahead and read that section about cellular composition from Michael Denton's classic book entitled Evolution, A Theory in Crisis.
0: This is from page 263 from a chapter entitled The Enigma of Life's Origins. Quote, the American biologist Harold Markowitz has speculated as to what might be the absolute minimum requirement for a completely self replicating cell. Such a cell would necessarily be bound by a cell membrane, and the simplest one feasible is probably the typical bilayered lipid membrane utilized by all existing cells. A synthesis of the facts of the cell membrane would require perhaps a minimum of five proteins. A minimum of 10 proteins would be required for the nucleotide building blocks of the DNA and for the DNA synthesis. Such a cell would also require a protein synthetic apparatus for the synthesis of its proteins. If this was along the lines of the usual ribosomal system, it would require about 80 proteins. This is the smallest hypothetical cell we can envision. Since we have allowed no control functions, no vitamin metabolism, and extremely limited intermediary metabolism. Unquote.
2: So, what Denton was describing in that paragraph you just read was the simplest theoretical cell. And some bacterial cells approach that level of quote, simplicity, but the cells of higher organisms multiply the level of complexity present within each cell. And we can get some idea of how much more complex, how much more complicated higher organism cells are just by looking at the DNA of the comparative creatures. The DNA of the simplest self-reproducing organism, which is called Mycoplasma genitalium, has the smallest known genome of any free-living organism. And the DNA of the mycoplasma contains 482 genes and it has about 580,000 base pairs. But the mycoplasma genitalium can't actually survive by itself. Mycoplasma only survives by parasitizing more complex organisms that provide the mycoplasma with many of the nutrients that it needs that it cannot manufacture for itself. Mycoplasma has DNA which consists of about 500,000 base pairs, little more as we said. By comparison, human DNA consists of 3 billion base pairs. Now remember, let's get those figures firmly in mind. Mycoplasma has DNA which consists of somewhat over 500,000 base pairs, but human DNA, by comparison, consists of 3 billion base pairs.
0: So the point of all this is really very simple. Living creatures are enormously complicated systems. Yet the general theory of evolution contends that all of this complexity arose as a result of the random collision of bits of matter floating in what is sometimes called a prebiotic soup. (laughs) Wow, that would have to have been an extremely fortunate accident for a hundred billion of the right atoms to all collide with one another in such a way that a permeable cell wall was instantly formed that contained hundreds of individual proteins that immediately began acting together to sustain and replicate themselves. How do the evolutionists address this obvious problem?
2: Well, typically what the evolutionists do is they don't actually try to address the issue of the composition, the formation of the original cell. What they try to do is come at the problem indirectly by talking about how organic precursors may have formed. So, another fact we need to understand about biochemistry, about the cellular composition, is that all of those protein machines within the cell are made up of amino acids. So evolutionists try to show that these amino acids may have somehow formed without intelligent intervention.
0: One survey of adult Americans indicates that as many as 75% of adult Americans believe that scientists have produced life from non-living chemicals. But that's not true, is it?
2: No. And frankly, even if a scientist did create, quote, life in a test tube, close quote, that would not prove that life arose or could have arisen without intelligent intervention. Unless the scientist who did that wanted to claim that they themselves were not intelligent. Anytime a scientist does something in a test tube, by definition, they purportedly are applying intelligence. And it's not just the fact that life displays incredible complexity. There are different forms of complexity that are present in life. At a minimum, there's irreducible complexity, specific complexity, and informational complexity. Now, when we speak of irreducible complexity, all we are really saying is that living systems are not only complicated, but they operate as part of a system. If you take one part away from that living system, or if a single part malfunctions, then you don't just affect that part. The entire system ceases to function. And this is very similar to many mechanical systems with which we are more familiar. I mean, someone might drive a car that's worth $100,000 or $200,000 or whatever, but you take away a $3 spark plug or wire, or you take a valve stem out of a tire, and the whole car stops. The failure of a single, seemingly insignificant part will stop the entire system from functioning.
0: Well, as you put it, some people believe that chemistry plus physics equals biology. But that's not true either, is it? The most graphic example of the failure of a single part stopping an enormously complicated system was the 1986 Challenger disaster. According to Wikipedia, the disaster was caused by the failure of two redundant O-ring seals in a joint in the space shuttle's right solid rocket booster, the SRB. The record low temperatures of the launch reduced the elasticity of the rubber O-rings, reducing their ability to seal the joints. The broken seals caused a breach into the joint shortly after liftoff, which allowed pressurized gas to leak and burn through the wall to the adjacent external fuel tank. This led to the separation of the right-hand solid rocket booster aft attachment, which caused it to crash into the external tank, which caused a structural failure of the external tank and an explosion.
2: Yes. Most people don't realize that there are dozens of biochemical reactions that must be present for vision to occur. And you remove a single one of those essential biochemical reactions, and even though the gross morphological parts of the eye, the lens, the cornea, the retina, all that, even though those things might be fine, you would remove one single biochemical reaction and the whole system fails. The complexity of life is not just irreducible, it is also specified. And the example used most often when we start talking about specified complexity is language. You know, we can have a very long sequence of random letters, hundreds, thousands, or millions of letters, and yet without specificity, most of that series is going to be meaningless.
0: An analog might be if we filled a swimming pool with a child's letter blocks. There would be enormous complexity in the jumble of the blocks, but how much meaning would be present? If we started pulling out blocks one at a time, occasionally we would pull out a sequence of two or three letters that had some meaning. The letter T and O might come out and that seems to mean something. Then we pull a P and that means something because now we have top. But after that, then what? If we pulled out another P, we could be on our way to topple. Or how likely would it be that the L and the E in that order? So a physical situation can be enormously complex but meaningless. But that is not at all how life exists.
2: And with your letter blocks in the pool analogy, we start to see the impossibility of aligning a 100 billion atoms that are present in the simplest cell by random interaction. Specified complexity means that the complexity has been so arranged that that complexity, once specified, will produce use. It will produce meaning. It will produce function. Or in the ultimate expression of that specified complexity, it will produce life. Life. All life exhibits specified complexity. Cells not only have to have billions of atoms, but all of those atoms have to be properly organized into micro-machines that perform specific purposes and functions, and all those micro-machines have to work together properly or the whole system fails.
0: So, specified complexity leads us to the conclusion that life contains informational complexity. Back to your formula, chemistry plus physics does not equal biology. Nor does the addition of time complete the package for life. Chemical plus physical systems that have been around for a while are just old systems. What transforms chemistry plus physics into biology is information. You might say that the information is necessary for animation, right?
2: Right. And there's a great book that discusses this need far more thoroughly and compellingly than we can with our time limitations. And the book is called In the Beginning Was Information, and it's by Dr. Werner Gitt. Information complexity is exhibited in all living systems, but it is certainly most potently exhibited in DNA. You know, DNA is far more than just a series of hydrogen, carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, and other elements that are clinging together in long molecular strings. DNA is an information storage system that is far more complicated, even at its simplest, than the most sophisticated human information system. You know, originally it was thought that the genes that are present in DNA controlled the attributes of the adult animal or creature. And it was basically thought that one gene controls one attribute.
0: But that's not true at all, is it?
2: No. The genes of all higher order animals are pleiotropic. And that's just a big word, which means that most of the genes control, or at least contribute to the control of multiple aspects of a creature. Moreover, we now know that DNA differs greatly from human information systems in that DNA is not just a two-dimensional information storage system. DNA is a three-dimensional information storage system or more. DNA isn't just read like most human language from, say, right to left or left to right. The code in the DNA is not just read right to left, but also left to right and even up and down. In some cases, when the DNA code is being translated by the body's translational mechanisms, the translational mechanism skips over some parts of the code when it's providing instructions to the rest of the cell. At other times, that part of the code that is skipped over is used for some purpose. And there's a brand new discipline, if you will, called epigenetics, which tells us that contrary to the longstanding idea that characteristics acquired by an individual during its lifetime cannot be passed on, Well, the science of epigenetics tells us that, in fact, there are characteristics that are acquired by certain living individuals that, in fact, are immediately passed on to their descendants.
0: It used to be thought that there was an absolute barrier between what are referred to as somatic cells and germ cells. Somatic cells are used to build the body of the creature. Germ cells are reproductive cells. It was thought that there was an absolute barrier between the two, and it was called the Wiseman Barrier. But the latest science indicates that that isn't always true. Yet all of this amazing complexity must be specified somewhere within the DNA. The big point is that living beings do not and cannot exist without enormous information systems being present in every component of the living creature, the cell.
2: Right. You know, the simplest cell will not work if its component parts don't function properly, both individually and collectively. And the same thing is true for the body systems that those individual cells build. That's irreducible complexity. The whole thing has to work. If one part fails, the system fails. Well, the cells and the body systems also have to be organized in very specific ways to support life. The cells and the body systems must exist as systems in order to have utility, function, and purpose. And so that utility, function, and purpose, that has to be developed and maintained in very specific configurations. And that's specified complexity and then present throughout all living creatures are incomprehensible amounts of information. And the information is not a direct consequence of the underlying chemistry any more than the information on the page of a book is dependent on the chemistry of the ink and the paper. The information present in living creatures transcends the physical storage apparatus in the same way that the information contained in a computer has nothing to do with the chips, the plastic, the wires, or the metal. And information is the exact opposite of randomness and chaos. Chaotically derived information is not only ridiculous, it's impossible.
0: Well, as you've said, the complexity of life makes it impossible that life could have arisen as a result of the random collision of atoms and molecules. Even if you could explain the existence of the atoms and the molecules to begin with, And even King David knew that 3,000 years ago, as our opening verse from Psalm 139 demonstrated, life is complex, irreducibly, specifically, and informationally. But let's hasten to add that as complex as it is to us, it presents no challenge to an omniscient God. Today, let's listen to a prayer for children who are getting ready to go back to school. And let's remember that as important as education is to our children, parents must also be alert to what their kids are being taught in school, especially public schools. That's one of the reasons it is so important for us to ground ourselves firmly in facts so we can correct the impressions that circulate so widely today, such as the idea that evolution can explain the marvelous complexity of life. Evolution can't, but the Bible does.
1: A prayer for a child starting school. Blessed Father, your word tells us that children are a gift from you. We thank you that you have blessed our family with our children, and we glorify you, that you are their real father. Your love for them exceeds any earthly love, and this encourages us that we may come to you in prayer for all their needs. Soon we have a child who will be starting school. We pray that you would meet our many needs at this time. We pray first that you will enable us to send them to a school that will be safe and that genuinely treasures the opportunity to be involved with your precious children. Help us to find a balance that is so important to helping them grow in trust while also learning to cope with the world and its temptations. Awaken in them and reawaken in us the joy of learning. When the disciples tried to prevent the children from coming to Christ, Christ rebuked them and forever established that he cares greatly for little children. He reminded the disciples that the little ones have angels in heaven who stand before the Father. We take comfort that Christ himself undertakes to provide for children. Therefore, we pray in Jesus' name in the confident expectation of mercy and
0: provision. Amen. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, Try out crystalseabooks.com where
2: we're not perfect, but our boss is.